All right, so I'll be talking about something uh, pretty different uh, from uh, what David was talking about. I'm interested in uh, the statistical physics aspect of these range expansions, so I'll be talking about non-equilibrium phase transitions in the context of these uh, spatial population genetics. Oh, there you go. Okay, so just as an outline, I'm sure I'll get to all these topics, but I'll talk about what uh, non-equilibrium phase transitions are and how they're connected to uh, evolutionary dynamics in particular. I'll talk about uh, the directed percolation phase transition and how that relates to radial range expansions, uh, expansions that grow out in concentric circles, basically. Um, I'll talk about various scaling laws that occur at the phase transition. Then we'll move to 3D space, where we'll talk about expanding spheres, uh, or colonies of uh, cells that uh, represent a sort of 3D uh, radial range expansion. And then, since, uh, in the spirit of this uh, workshop, I'll talk about range expansions that include mutualism. So this will be related to what David talked about uh, during uh, the conference. And uh, we'll also talk about mutualisms that expand, mutualistic range expansions that expand with rough uh, fronts. So um, directed percolation is a class, I guess, of systems that uh, have a particular kind of dynamic behavior. So what's involved here is that there is uh, some kind of active phase that percolates in time through an inactive phase. So one uh, sort of canonical example of this is an avalanche where you have some tilted plane of sand and you perturb it here. Uh, with a stick and watch the sand grains move down the incline and the moving sand grains can branch and they can get jammed and stop moving and so there is a kind of one-way mutation that occurs from the active phase, in this case the moving sand, into an inactive you know, question phase in which uh, the sand particles no longer move. So um, another instance of this uh, kind of uh, dynamic class of systems is, uh, was done in this experiment here where they took uh, a liquid crystal between two uh, plates. So this is, uh, uh, there's a liquid crystal confined in a basically a two-dimensional plane and they take a laser and they um, inoculate in a sense a uh, turbulent phase in the center of the cell and watch the turbulent phase sort of invade the rest of the liquid crystal in time. So the colors here are just to indicate the different time slices. As we go in time, this uh, turbulent phase expands, and also it can, uh, just as in the uh, moving sand case, it can uh, stop and uh, become non-turbulent again, essentially. So, uh, so you can see that this is somewhat reminiscent of a radial range expansion, or sorry, uh, in which you, uh, a range expansion in which you inoculate some um, mutant, say, and watch it in the, in the center of a population, watch it invade the rest of the population with uh, sort of one-way mutations, where you allow this mutant to um, mutate into, say, a less advantageous version of itself into the wild type, and watch it expand the population, and there's a, essentially going to be a uh, mutation selection balance established. Um, so that would be the analog there. So in a range expansion, we've mostly seen neutral expansions where you say inoculate two strains, red and green here, um, with a razor blade and watch them expand and you get this genetic demixing that occurs. So this is also a kind of uh, directed percolation. 
where you can treat the green phase, the green cells here, the green strain, as the active phase that percolates uh, through the red, or vice versa in this case, because it's symmetric. But uh, for directed percolation, we'll be interested in the case where um, the green strain can mutate to the red irreversibly. Um, and so we can imagine inoculating a single green cell in a homeland of red cells and watching it try to spread through the population. We imagine it has some selective advantage over the red strain so it can spread, but at the same time, the one-way mutations will prevent it uh, from uh, getting too far in this case. You can see the green can mutate to red, but not vice versa. And there are two typical initial conditions to consider. One is with a single seed, so a single cell in an all-red population, say, or you can, uh, similar to this case, you can imagine inoculating an equal mixture of green or red cells and watching these um, green cells percolate through the population over time. Um, so the uh, motivation here is, uh, biological motivation is again to study the differences that you get between well-mixed populations that you, um, they're typically studied in these population genetics experiments versus range expansions which have some spatial structure which can strongly influence um, what goes on and to the ultimate fate of these uh, strains. And so uh, what uh, typically is considered, we imagine in a simple model of two strains, we have, um, we can track the fraction of green cells over time. And you can imagine starting with some initial fraction of green in the slow mixed test tube and tracking the fraction of green cells as we basically allow these uh, cells to divide and to mutate. Um, and so what happens is that we can track this fraction and it'll perform some random walk and selection will push the fraction up because selection will favor, so here selection I mean the selective advantage of the green cell over the red, it'll push these uh, random walks up to this boundary, mutations will push us down because we allow for mutations from green to red and so and genetic drift will basically add noise to these uh, dynamics. And so you can imagine there's this competition that occurs between all these three sort of, uh, processes. And all of this um, we can imagine occurring near a, um, in a fitness landscape near a peak. And I'll explain what I mean by that. We can imagine that the green strain is essentially the, is essentially an individual that is at some fitness maximum. And as um, Irene mentioned yesterday, these fitness peaks can be quite sharp. And what we imagine is that uh, all of these green, all the green cells have some long sequence that code for some protein that give it uh, a selective advantage. And if the protein sequence is long enough, basically any mutation in um, the sequence can create a loss of function that will remove the selective advantage. And after that happens, there's very little chance that you'll get a backwards mutation just because of the... Any yep. mutation in the sequence? Uh, any um, any non-synonymous mutation. Can, so, of course, things can get more complicated, but as uh, Irene sort of showed in the RNA case, it's often the case that even one mutation will give you a large drop. Uh, in I, that, I meant that if that's an enzyme. Uh -huh. Very often this is an enzyme, what gives you some specific function. Right. So it has some parts that are hidden inside 
deep inside the enzyme. So that's why right. Why so would the mutation there be so important? So we're not looking at the mutations that are sort of neutral. Okay. So this is uh, okay. you can okay. effectively look at this as a you know a, a deleterious mutation rate, which knocks out the function of this enzyme. Say, and we're looking at the dynamics of that. So what happens to the population when the in which you have uh, a strain with uh, this particular enzyme, what happens if you, uh, say, undergo these deleterious mutations which uh, knock out the enzyme and give you a fitness disadvantage. And so what happens is if the mutation rate, mu, is strong enough, you will no longer be able to keep a uh, finite fraction of green cells in your population, and there is a kind of error threshold that occurs where your population basically loses the green strain and all of the, um, all of the individuals in your population uh, will become less fit, become the, uh, what I would call the... Population size fixed? Yes, so, so uh, it's, right, right, for a fixed population size. Of course, in an infinite population, in an infinite uh, uh, population, you just expect the fraction to go they're continuously to zero as you, you also for, for a well mixed case. Sorry? You also have death. Yeah, so, so this in these models, you keep the population size constant. So it's, it's sort of a turnover, you can imagine. So, so this is a kind of motivation for studying one way mutations. Again, this uh, loss of function, some enzyme, uh, which for which any mutation basically that uh, can knock it out, it basically becomes irreversible. So this is what. Uh, a model for these fitness peaks looks like. Again, this is, would be the distance from this master sequence that codes for um, this enzyme. Um, so any mutation away from it will um, move you from some fitness maximum to a flat landscape, which you kind of move around and you never get back um, to where you started. And so this is this kind of fitness landscape is um, basically what is required for directive percolation. Again, we have these. Uh, irreversible mutations, and any subsequent mutation will take you back to the red strain. An alternative formulation of this is you can imagine uh, the mutations having a sort of small selective disadvantage, and so that your fitness peak is essentially broadened. Um, and then you can have still irreversible mutations because you can imagine that uh, if you mutate in one position in the sequence, uh, it's very unlikely that you'll revert back, but you can imagine get, acquiring two or three and so forth um, places in the sequence where you mutate. And so you can imagine a fitness that uh, decreases um, with uh, the distance of the sequence, the mutated sequence from the master sequence, the distance being just the number of uh, places in which it's uh, mutated. And so there, that would correspond to a kind of unidirectionally coupled directed percolation where we have some fittest strain, which is this um, master sequence, and then mutates one step at a time um, these different colors. And so I'll talk about both, but first I'll concentrate on the uh, directed percolation case. And one way to, so I'm, I'm interested in modeling these things on a uh, lattice, these range expansions, because it allows me to sort of repeat this experiment many, many, many times. You wouldn't be able to do um, sort of either more complicated simulations or um, um, in the laboratory to get, to get good statistics. So one uh, uh, particular model 
of this kind of one-way mutation uh, range expansion is uh, called a Damani-Kinzel model. And what happens is you allow, you inoculate cells along a line here in this hexagonal lattice, and then each pair of adjacent cells will compete with, uh, to produce a daughter cell in the next uh, generation. And so you assign a probability for having a green daughter from a, a red and green cell with uh, this probability, where S represents the selective advantage of um, the green cell over the red. And you also allow for mutations by uh, allowing the daughter to mutate from green to red or red to green after it, uh, uh, after you place it in the next generation here. So this kind of uh, combination of uh, selection mutation uh, allows us to um, uh, simulate this directed percolation uh, problem here. And so here, uh, red and red cell, of course, uh, they uh, either one can produce a, a red daughter. Uh, here we have competition between the green and the red and so forth. And so you fill this out one row at a time. So each row represents a uh, generation in this linear range expansion with the time going uh, this way. So P PG is the probability of uh, green if the parents are red and green? Yep. And if the parents are red and red? If the parents are red and red, then they, the, the daughter green. cell is always red. But you can add mutations with some parents rate. Parents are always green. It's always yep, green. yep, right. Um, and so the time here is time steps, so one, two, three, and so forth are, again, uh, generations in this linear range expansion. And you can imagine in an experiment, you can uh, create this by using a razor blade inoculation. And this assumes that there's sort of no growth of the cells behind the frontier. So in a sense, um, only this leading edge of the population is able to compete and reproduce into the next uh, generation in this model. Um, you can do the same thing for a radial expansion, where you uh, look at sort of the, an inoculation, the circular inoculation here in a hexagonal lattice, so a hexagon. Basically, you pick some central points, and to create flat fronts, you need to um, basically uh, populate concentric rings around this population. Each concentric ring represents a generation. So this would be a radial range expansion. And the uh, probabilistic update rule is uh, similar, except that uh, sometimes you need to take into account for three cells competing into an adjacent uh, uh, site in the next generation. And so you just weigh these according to uh, their uh, basically, their growth rates, you can assign a growth rate of 1 for the green cell and a growth rate of 1 minus S to the red. And so the probability that this is uh, green is just the sum of the growth rates of the green cells, which is 2 divided by normalization. Um, and again, you can add mutations in the same way. Um, and you fill these up one at a time, starting with this, uh, the cells that are closest to this uh, purple central cell, and this creates the sort of concentric uh, <coughs> fronts. So again, this is uh, um, the relevant fitness landscape here is a single peak, which, uh, in which we don't have these backwards mutations. We just have uh, mutations from green to red, which are irreversible. If there's only one neighbor? 
like on the yeah. Um, one neighbor. Let's see. I, I I don't think it's a. It's not possible. Each one has two or three, at least for the hexagonal uh, lattice. Start not on. You don't start on one of the corners, basically. He's asking what happens if you have, what, what about the corner uh, mother? Could, could she give a daughter that goes off and makes them even a sharper corner? Um, like on the left, the left. So, you this? Yeah, and then you go to the left. Oh, you can't because there will always be cells. So you pick the cell that is closest to the central purple cell. Oh. So it always makes concentric rings. And so you would, you would pick these two first before you pick that one. But you, that seems a little unnatural, right? Because that's a global... Uh, Certainly, it's, it's a global constraint. So it's, uh, the reason you do this is because um, you want to have a uh, kind of dimensional reduction. You want to be able to treat the dynamics. Um, so we will get to rough fronts, and I'll talk about what uh, differences you get when you allow undulations um, in the front. But uh, for a lot of um, species like yeast and so forth, they, you, the radial range expansions are quite um, flat, and so this is a good way of uh, approximating that. Um, you can imagine some... Um, that come out uh, from uh, dynamics of the interface itself. You don't have to impose it. You don't, you don't have to, but again, the idea here is to get uh, very good statistics of what happens. And so uh, you can show that, this, uh, that what happens here is uh, basically equivalent to, say, a stepping stone model or something like this. Where or, or one in which uh, you, you have uh, uh, flat fronts that are not imposed via this global constraint. But uh, there is a you're right, Boris. I think it, it is unnatural in a biological sense. But there is perhaps a biological way of realizing it. If the uh, current members of the colony are secreting uh, some signal that says divide, but only divide if you're at the frontier. Um, that might be some way of creating a compact colony. Uh, in the case of yeast, it's actually a surface tension. It's interactions between the yeast cells. But you'll get to undulating yeah. fronts eventually. Right, and of course you, you can uh, make the models more complicated and add something like a, um, a growing interface with uh, perhaps then, uh, capture this uh, kind of constraint more naturally, but I think this uh, gives you the right statistics for what happens to the population in that. Sorry, just one question. So the green to red mutation only yeah. happens when you have uh, when you occupy a new cell, right? So yeah, yeah so at the front. It, it, you can imagine it's a kind of mutation that occurs at, uh, during uh, division or something yes. like okay. that. So they're always coupled um, in in this model. You first um, make a daughter cell, and then it, you know it can mutate. Thanks. Um, so an interesting thing that happens when you try to model this on a hexagonal lattice is you get strong uh, lattice artifacts. Uh, the domains tend to grow along the crystallographic directions. And so this is a problem because that's not um, what happens biologically. You don't, uh, cells don't really grow on a hexagonal lattice and this, you know, you don't see this. So uh, is the square lattice also showing an artifact? Yeah, yeah, this is a square lattice and they grow along the four. So have you tried with something else? Yeah, I'll get to that. So this is, we're going to fix it. This is a problem. It's uh, sort of overlooked a lot in a lot of these simulations. You typically imagine that the lattice is sort of irrelevant. You put the simulation on a lattice and you imagine it doesn't matter, but it can create these strong effects, uh, even on large length scales. So 
Uh, one way to test to see if you're sort of getting things right is to look at um, physicists call it two-point correlation function. I'll just might call it heterozygosity, where you look at um, two cells that are separated by some distance delta x, and you ask what's the probability that the two cells are different colors. And so you can pick your initial cell in a, in a linear expansion. You can go out some distance x, and then some displacement delta x, and ask what's the probability that these two cells are different. And then you can, um, for a translationally invariant system, you imagine the, the, the heterozygosity is independent of this initial displacement. It doesn't matter which pair, which you can imagine a sliding window here along this uh, population, and the probability should be the same. Similarly, you can do in a radial expansion, you can look at angular displacements and ask what's the uh, probability that the two cells are different and some, have some angular displacement, delta phi. So what you find for these, um, for these simulations on a lattice is that you get oscillations. You're more likely to have cells of the same color at certain angles um, around this uh, expansion, certain distances apart. So in particular, that um, you get as many oscillations, basically, as there are uh, crystallographic directions. And an important feature of these heterozygosities which will be important later, is that they all go to zero at zero displacement. And that's because we're looking at basically monolayer range expansions in which locally there's just a single cell. And so, um, of course, the probability that uh, cells are different at a single point must go to zero. You vanish the separation. Um, so we want to get rid of these oscillations. And the way to do that, the way we did this, anyway, is to uh, do a kind of off-lattice simulation where you pack cells of two different sizes, a large and a small. And you can tune the size ratio and the fraction of um, big cells versus the little ones uh, to create an amorphous configuration. So here is an um, expansion, hexagonally packed uh, structure. And here is what happens when you pack these uh, two different sizes. Uh, cells, you see that you lose this sort of hexatic ordering. You can uh, measure it uh, quantitatively by computing essentially the Fourier transform of the positions of the cells. Can you and, yeah. describe what the Bennett model really is? I mean, how, how do you? The Bennett model is uh, so the way you proceed is you pick, you initialize some uh, cluster of um, cells, say a little triangle, and you pick some point, some central point. And then you add cells um, one at a time such that uh, there's two constraints. One is that it's closest to this point. And uh, the other constraint is that each cell is adjacent to at least two previous cells. So the, how do you pick the radius? So the radius is picked randomly. You either pick a big one or a little one with some probability that, that uh, is set by, you, you set it yourself in order to tune. Oh, it's just one tune. of two different Yeah, it's one of two different, uh, okay. two, two different sizes. And we can create these nice uh, amorphous lattices that uh, completely eliminate these oscillations. So, and this is biologically sort of more reasonable because you can imagine when cells divide, there will be a small daughter cell, at least for yeast, the butt off. Um, so there'll be a distribution of sizes, and so this is kind of more natural. But I keep that central point fixed. Yeah, you keep that. So yeah, so this is again this somewhat unnatural global constraint, but again, it's to simulate this uh, surface tension that you would get for a yeast colony, say, that keeps the um, 
population front uh, smooth. So I'll get the rough front so it changes the... It's a little cookie to keep the same point even though the cluster is <coughs> changing its shape and you know its own center of mass will be shifting as you add things, right? Just a little bit though. So, so the, all of the action sort of happens on these concentric rings mm -hmm. uh, because of this uh, global constraint. And they stop growing in the interior, so once that, that, right. that gets locked in. Right. Ah. Okay, so, um, so an important point uh, to make is sort of uh, that these lattice models, they're not, um, um, you can prove in a you know, somewhat rigorous way that if you look at the large sort of length scale um, behavior of the system that it's equivalent to essentially a stepping stone model, which is commonly used in uh, population genetics where you consider basically a uh, set of islands, uh, so well-mixed populations along the line, and you allow cells to kind of uh, hop between these different test tubes, keeping the population within each tube constant, and in, any, in, each, in, in each tube you have some you have the population uh, dynamics that you would have in a sort of simple Moran model or something like this, where you're going to have mutations and selection going on, division, and so forth. And you can show uh, that what you get from these lattice models, even with these you know, artificial constraints and so forth, is that you get the same um, dynamics, essentially, that you would get for, um, for a stepping stone model. And so in particular, you can write down an equation for what happens to a kind of coarse-grained a fraction of green cells at some spatial point uh, x and some time t. And what you get is uh, it's kind of stochastic uh, uh, Fisher equation, it's a partial differential equation. You have a diffusion term, which corresponds to sort of cells hopping. It's a kind of effective hopping that you would get if you coarse-grain the lattice model. So the lattice model doesn't really have um, hopping, but you can imagine that uh, these cell boundaries, for instance, diffuse, and that, in a coarse-grained way, can be modeled. Um, the diffusion term, like this, uh, selection is this term, nonlinear term here, uh, which favors the uh, green cells over the red, and then you can add mutations, which uh, either subtract from the green fraction, which would be the irreversible mutations that I'll be talking about, or you know, you can also add a sort of backwards mutation rate. So F is, a, is effectively an average, just a linear? Yeah, it, it's, it's a coarse-grained average. So what you imagine you pick some uh, neighborhood, um, but really it should be an interval here in space, and you just sum over all the green cells and divide by the total number of cells in that neighborhood, and that gives you kind of local density of the, green cells. The, does, does the circle have a meaning, or is uh, it, it's it just, a, it's a just interval? It, it's, it should be an interval, but it's okay. harder to see. I didn't want to. Yeah, it should be an interval, and you sum over. You know, uh, you just calculate the uh, coarse grain fraction, and you can show that the dynamics uh, of that coarse graining is uh, uh, the same as this uh, stepping stone uh, model. Um, so this is just a, a bit of map. What you can do with uh, this uh, this equation here. If you don't have selection or mutation, you can actually use it to compute things like the uh, 
heterozygosity, and you can actually connect. So what, what the difference between the radial and linear cases is basically in the uh, diffusion term, at least when you have no um, uh, selection or mutations. It's really in this uh, diffusion term where this Laplacian in the linear case is, on a, uh, is basically calculated on a sort of flat, um, in flat space, but in the radial case, this is computed along the um, perimeter of a circle that's expanding in time. And so what you find is uh, a diffusion equation for the heterozygosity. There's a special boundary condition, as I said, that it's zero separation it must go to zero. And you can solve this in both the linear and radial case. And there's an interesting mapping that, have, that uh, you get that convert, you can basically convert the linear equation into the radial one by identifying a kind of uh, special time coordinate for the radial guy. So basically, it's the uh, time variable here in this kind of nonlinear transformation. And T star is a uh, special uh, crossover time, which is given by the initial radius of the radial range expansion divided by the expansion speed, the velocity. And so using this mapping, you can basically uh, convert the radial equation into the linear one. Uh, we'll not go into too much detail on that, but what happens, you can, uh, in the neutral case, you can actually collapse both uh, the, the heterozygosities over time here. So here you start with uh, um, some initial heter The initial heterozygosity for a well-mixed population is basically everywhere one half except at the origin where it drops to zero. And you can watch these guys sort of form a valley over time. And this valley would represent you know, the characteristic size, angular size of uh, the domains that form in the radial range expansion. Similarly, for the linear case, uh, these, uh, this valley is formed. And the difference between uh, these two is that as uh, the time goes to infinity, this valley actually becomes infinitely large because the domains grow without uh, bound. But in the radial case, it's interesting. There's a finite, um, there's a finite size, angular size, to the sectors that uh, develop. And this comes back to this conformal coordinate here, this conformal time coordinate. We see that as t goes to infinity, the effective time for um, the radial expansion, these units, goes to 1. And so the way to think about that is what a, a radial expansion is, the way you can compute the statistics of it is imagine taking a linear expansion, letting it grow out to this crossover time, um, uh, R0 divided by V, and then taking this strip that you get from the linear expansion, wrapping it around a circle and stretching it out to infinity. And that would be, um, that would give you the same statistics um, as just doing the radial range expansion. So you can collapse all the data to a single kind of uh, form for this heterozygosity, just given by this error function. And again, you can rescale the variables um, in this way for both the linear and the radial cases. Uh, so it's a kind of interesting um, mapping between the two. Uh, a bit surprising. Um, so another thing you can do is you can look at um, what happens to a single sector here that you inoculate um, on an all-red homeland. And you can then 
by mapping the sector boundaries to a sort of random walk, you can calculate what the survival probability is of this sector at uh, some particular time. And so what you find is that there is this characteristic key parameter that <laughs> relates the selective coefficient, which is in here, to the sort of genetic drift, the diffusion, the genetic diffusion part that tells you basically uh, when you expect this sector to reach uh, a inflationary regime in which basically it's guaranteed to survive uh, at uh, infinite times. So for when this dimensionless parameter is bigger than one, you expect these sectors to survive uh, at long times and when it's much smaller than one, genetic drift is kind of always important so there's always a chance that uh, these two boundaries of the green sector will collide and annihilate each other and you go to extinction. And so you can actually calculate these survival probabilities um, um, analytically with some approximations, but you get a pretty, pretty, pretty good uh, agreement with simulations, even for large values of the, selective, uh, the selection coefficient. And so this kind of continuum uh, theory, this matching between this kind of random walk argument in the lattice model is uh, encouraging because it means that really by using this amorphous lattice and so forth, we've eliminated any of these strange um, artifacts uh, of being on a lattice to begin with. And this is, so the continuum theory here is really appropriate. Um, and so one interesting feature of these survival probabilities is that even when you have zero selection, you can then solve for the survival probability exactly at infinite times, which would correspond to this conformal time of one here. Uh, you get a finite survival probability in the radial case and not in the linear one, which uh, at infinite times, would, the survival probability would go to zero. Um, and this has to do with the fact that in one dimension, in the linear expansion, this pair, these uh, random walkers here that form the boundaries of a green sector uh, they're random walks, and since uh, random walks are recurrent in one dimension, they'll eventually uh, annihilate each other. But inflation saves you from that fate, um, at least in a probabilistic way, and you can actually get a sector that survives out to infinite times because it only really has to survive past this crossover time, after which inflation takes over and essentially pulls the sector boundaries uh, apart in a sort of linearly in time. It's and suppresses the kind of square root of time diffusive motion that you would get due to genetic drift. Um, so this is a phase diagram. What happens when you add mutations? So uh, in the previous uh, slide, I showed you, you know, what happens when you have selective advantage and so forth, and you want to observe these uh, sectors expanding in time, but you can imagine now we have these irreversible mutations. So what happens is that you set up a balance between the mutation and the selective advantage. If the selective advantage is big enough and the mutation rate here, which increases downward, is small enough, you're going to be in an active phase. And in the active phase, there is a finite probability that your initially inoculated green cell will survive out to infinite times and uh, form an infinite uh, cluster. In the inactive phase, the mutations win, and basically all, all uh, sectors that start from a single green cell will eventually 
die out. Um, and so we're interested to see what happens near this transition in the radial case. Yep. So just, sorry. Please remind me. So mutation here is, uh, as far as the green phase is concerned, mutation is only deleterious. Right. Green takes you to uh, red. So uh, doesn't it just uh, sort of renormalize your S then? Uh, no, not, not um, no, I mean, having a finite mutation rate changes the topology of these uh, clusters entirely because you, you can get gaps and so yeah, yeah. forth. Um, but I guess, you, could you say, Max, that there's a, a in the same spirit, there's a renormalized selective advantage. Selective advantage is, is related to that opening angle. Um, the the yeah. average opening angle of that Swiss cheese-like cone sure. on the right side. So presumably there's... Yes, you could parameterize the opening angle by the distance away from this phase boundary right. into the active phase. That's so true. that S will, uh, S will, the mutation rate will affect that. Right. So right. is the opening angle zero along that line, that entire? Yes, so uh, along this line it's... Um, is that the critical right, it's, uh, right, right. It's uh, it's it's the critical case where um, the probability uh, of getting an infinite cluster so is like zero. Into the green, then the angle opens up. Yeah, then they right. And there's an exponent. Right, right. That describes that opening exactly all along that line. Is it the same exponent right. for the entire line? It's yes. The conjecture is it's the same exponent along this entire line, except for this very special point where there's no mutations. Uh, and in that case, it's just the point is just a neutral case that the, uh, I was talking about previously. But that's still zero angle at that point. Okay. The, right. It's uh, the, the the clusters will all die out. Okay. But curiously, I mean, this distinction uh, that you, you explained to me, it, it only appears in uh, spatial case, right? So right. it was all well mixed, right? That there would be uh, no. That's right. In fact, the whole thing would just collapse into one parameter. Right. Right, uh, all that's right, exactly. Yep. Um, so, um, in the spatial case for these uh, range expansions, the sort of spatial properties of the system are important. In particular, you can identify characteristic sizes in both the time direction and space direction. So, for, for instance, the, in the active phase where you get these infinitely percolating clusters, you, the voids essentially, the red cells form these voids and their characteristic uh, sizes um, sort of provide you with these uh, length scales, these uh, correlation lengths. And as you approach the phase boundary, these things diverge, uh, the voids become larger and larger as essentially the green strain is no longer able to um, propagate through the populations just at this transition point into the inactive phase. And at that point, so this is for, a, for an initial condition where you start with an all-green population and watch it kind of melt uh, down into the red uh, strain over time. And so you can identify these correlation uh, lengths. They diverge as you get closer and closer to the phase boundary uh, with these particular exponents, these numbers. And there are two more um, 
those naively independent exponents that come from looking at, again, these two initial conditions. So in this condition where you start with some mixture of green and red or all green and so forth, you can calculate the fraction of green cells over time. And this will decay to 0 at, um, um, so, so it'll, it'll um, at very long times, it'll go to 0 at the phase boundary. And so uh, if you're a little distance delta away from this phase boundary to the active phase, there is also going to be some exponent that describes uh, uh, what the size of this um, fraction at infinite times will be. So these should be, these should be plus signs. Yes. Yep, plus signs. Yep, yep. Should be pluses. So these should go to 0 as delta goes to 0, not diverge. Um, and for a single C case, which for these non-equilibrium systems, it's interesting that the initial condition is a kind of, it's a, a relevant, um, um, it, it's, it's, it's relevant to what happens even to the, to the long time dynamics of the system. So um, unlike an equilibrium where you sort of expect that uh, you can uh, pick any initial condition and it settles to some equilibrium um, states the initial condition that you pick for these dynamic systems is actually quite important. It can uh, lead to different um, behaviors at uh, long times. And so that's why we have these, again, these two exponents. And so for a single seed, um, you can measure the survival probability. What's the probability that this uh, green guy has formed a cluster that survived out to time t? And again, you can look at what happens as t goes to infinity. And again, at the phase boundary, this thing will go to zero. Beta and beta prime are simply related to each other. Yes, yeah. for directed percolation, actually, it turns out they're equal. It's a special symmetry for uh, this particular class of, um, uh, for this particular dynamical class. In general, though, uh, like for instance, in the case where you have no mutations, these are actually different. But still related to each other. Yeah. By a simple gap exponent. Uh, yeah, you can relate them, right? There's some scaling relation between them um, that they satisfy, but um, uh, no, these these are, these are these are independent. Uh, well, there's some hyperscaling relation, I guess, that you can. Um, it's independent of where you cross the phase boundary, maybe. Yeah, so it's conjectured that all along this line, it's the same universality class. It's called the directed percolation, except that this point uh, up top. So you'd expect, um, basically all that changes is the kind of, um, uh, you, it's, it's, it's kind of, you can imagine that uh, as you move along the line, kind of the thickness of these green parts will become larger, smaller, and so forth. But um, sort of the, the, on the coarse grain level, they look uh, the same. If you keep zooming out. Um, all along that line, you expect to get the same thing. So here is what happens in the radial case. You can still identify these phases. But what's interesting is that this crossover time becomes really important. Uh, so if you start with an all green population and you wait uh, for it to evolve to this time t star, which is, again, the initial radius divided by the front speed, these clusters that make it out to this point uh, can survive for much longer because essentially they're uh, Two, the, the two, their boundaries become stretched out due to inflation. 
the fact that your population size is constantly increasing as uh, you get larger and larger um, perimeters. So um, you can do a kind of analysis of this and see uh, what happens to, say, a single sector that you start out with. And you can simulate what happens to the sector for different, uh, at different uh, sizes of the initial population. And you can see you can get a very nice collapse of all of the data for all of these different size radii by uh, just treating this crossover time t star as a uh, kind of a scaling variable and rescaling all your times appropriately to collapse this data. And so what you can see what happens here to the survival probability is initially it decays, just as you would expect for a linear expansion with this particular exponent uh, characterized by the directed percolation. Uh, universality class, but then it flattens to a constant. So as I mentioned, after this, after you have times larger than this crossover time, you expect that if your sector has already survived out to that point, it'll survive out um, to uh, very long times, basically infinite times. Um, this scaling collapses exactly at the transition as a function of? Yes, right. It's exactly at this transition. So you would expect in the linear case for this thing to just keep on decaying all the way down to zero, but inflation kind of saves you from a horrible fate of dying out uh, by pushing apart these boundaries. And so you kind of lose uh, the critical behavior. The inflation X is a kind of uh, special kind of finite size effect um, that changes the critical dynamics um, by cutting off you know, sort of your uh, uh, power law decays with uh, time. You can do the same kind of analysis for the number of green cells in this population. And in this case, you can actually estimate what the exponent should be in the inflationary phase. What you expect is that these two boundaries will be moving apart from each other linearly in time due to the inflating radius. But in between them, you still locally have just regular old critical directed percolation. So the exponent here should be 1, which is the increase of the radius minus alpha, where alpha is this um, 0.16, which just, talk, which just tells you how the density in between the two boundaries decays with time. Um, and so, so it matches. There should be a minus sign here, but I guess it didn't come out. Um, OK, so another thing you can do is look at uh, deflating perimeters. So this is a inoculation of. Uh, E. coli here done by uh, Kiro Korla. Uh, it's done with a rim of a test tube with a little wedge cut out of it. You dip it in the solution, you uh, spot it on the petri end. This little wedge allows nutrients to flow into here and allows uh, the radial expansion to proceed in both directions. So uh, there's an outward kind of inflationary expansion going this way, which can spread uh, cluster boundaries breaks them apart linearly in time. And uh, conversely, in this direction, the sector boundaries actually cram together. So it's uh, uh, linearly in time. So it actually enhances the kind of, uh, effects of genetic drift, because you push these boundaries closer and closer together so that the random walks that these boundaries perform become more and more important, contribute to the annihilation of the sector as you start uh, from some initial inoculant and grow inward. Um, so, and you can calculate, again, you can calculate what happens to single sectors and so forth. Um, 
you can calculate the survival probability by again, mapping the domain uh, boundaries to random walkers. Uh, so I, I won't go into details here. Uh, the interesting uh, extension of this is to where a linear expansion would basically be uh, a range expansion that grows in uh, stacks of cells that grow on top of each other, say. Or you, uh, alternatively, you can think about a plane of cells that uh, has some turnover. Uh, and so you can watch these domains develop in time. The coarsening of these domains is quite different in two dimensions. It's, uh, the coarsening grows logarithmically in time. And so it's of interest to see what happens again when you add inflation. And you can do that by using the original Bennett model in which you actually pack uh, spheres, create a disordered uh, cluster of spheres by attaching spheres one at a time in a similar way you did with the disks. We did with the disks, except you know, now it's in three space, but it's the same procedure. Add them one at a time so that each one touches at least three previous guys. And again, you could no longer have this nice uh, analytic trick of treating the boundaries between red and green as random walks. They're now very complicated um, objects that can't be treated that way. And this an interesting property of these kinds of coarsenings is that uh, um, a surface tension to these domains, they don't form any kind of bubbles or anything like that which you can treat in a simple way. There's a kind of this coarsening occurs in a very dilute sort of boundaries always remain extremely complicated and this thing always stays partially mixed. Um, uh, so sort of the same things happen in the in 3D cases in the 2D case you again you compute the heterozygosity more or less exactly there's some subtleties because of this kind of logarithmic behavior but again you get a limiting form at long times for the rate um, in the linear case everything kind of um, coarsens without bound logarithmically but you in a radial case you get a cutoff just as before again this conformal time is and can do the same kind of mapping we did before. Uh, so this is what uh, the directed percolation uh, phase diagram looks like. You see that we have moved the boundary now closer to this mean field line, which would correspond to sort of the transition that occurs um, in a well-mixed population. So as we move in higher to, to higher dimensions, this uh, uh, boundary shifts down uh, and the system behaves a little bit more like the well-mixed case. So in four dimensions, we can imagine such a thing. This, this thing would act like a, uh, a well-mixed um, population. Um, so you can do the same scaling analysis. Uh, and you, you get the similar kind of data collapses for these different uh, radii. Uh, again, here now this exponent that tells you about the number of green cells in this patch, starting from a single uh, that is created from a single generated from a single green cell. Again, uh, at uh, late times, the patch size is inflated quadratically in time because the radius grows linearly, so that an area expands as you know the radius squared minus the alpha that corresponds to the decay of. Uh, the, the active phase for just regular directed percolation, which is different now, and alpha is different than um, 
than for the, the two-dimensional case. The picture on the left, that is the surface of a sphere? Right? Yes, so this is the surface of a sphere, and this is what happens after 20 generations of concentric spheres expanding out. Um, is it a single progenitor? Yes, there's a single progenitor on the initial cluster of uh, radius of 10 cells. So this could be like a, a crude model of a, a tumor with exactly. a rotation of the surface. Right. So uh, skip this part. Uh, it won't get to, so one thing you can do is you can, of course, look at the more complicated fitness peak. Um, and then you have lots and lots of colors. But the, the features are uh, very similar. I won't go, go into that. I wanted to talk about a little bit anyway, so I don't want to. <laughs> keep you here too long, about mutualism. So what happens when uh, the two strains depend on each other to um, survive in the sense that each one grows faster when it's in the presence of the other strain? So this is different from the direct percolation case. We have no mutations here. But um, uh, you, can, you can still define a model that sort of captures uh, what happens in these uh, range expansions with mutualism very simple model where you just treat uh, three cells in the previous generation uh, sort of competing to produce a daughter cell in the next generation and each one gets an enhanced growth rate if it's in the presence of uh, uh, two, uh, two cells of the opposite type. So you can define these mutualistic parameters to tell you like, how much faster the green cell grows in the presence of two red guys, or how much faster a red cell grows in the presence of two green guys, and then uh, the rest is kind of, there's no mutations, so if it's all green, then all these three guys just produce a green cell, or it's all red, and then they all produce a red cell, but uh, it's actually enough to give you um, sort of the features that uh, David talked about uh, during his talk at the conference. You can do, in two plus one dimensions, in three dimensions, you can do stacks of uh, spheres in a sort of FCC lattice. So each stack, uh, each plane here, uh, each cell has three is sitting on top of three cells um, from the previous generation. So actually, you can actually use these same rules in the in the 3D case. So what happens is you get this really nice phase diagram. It's very clean because again, using these lattice models, it's very easy to get. Uh, uh, lots and lots of statistics of what happens. And so the interesting thing that happens is that uh, when you tune, even for positive, positive mutualistic uh, advantage, you get, um, uh, you, you get basically, so th this phase diagram here, it tells you the density essentially of cells that uh, are um, surrounded by two neighbors of the opposite uh, type. So here, these stars represent these or active cells. And it represents just a fraction of the population that's in the mixed phase. Uh, so um, you get a mixed phase everywhere in this region here. And it's interesting that even for positive values of these mutualistic advantages, you can still get, uh, due to the fluctuations, the spatial fluctuations, you can still get uh, a phase uh, in which you have no mixed phase, in which the green and red segregate into separate uh, domains. And so the way to think about that, um, it's still, there's still elements of direct percolation here if you think about the uh, interfaces between green and red, um, um, between green and red 
cells here. So these interfaces, they can divide and they can perannihilate and so forth. And so what happens here is that along this boundary, you actually also get a line of directed percolation transitions where in this phase, uh, the, the active phase is really a finite density of these interfaces, whereas in here you would expect, um, so here alpha is bigger than beta, here you would expect the green cells to win and to form just a um, you know, population of green cells at long times. And here you would expect the red cells to win in similar ways, they outcompete the green uh, using this uh, mutualistic advantage. Here, oh, um, at this point there's a special uh, uh, point which, uh, at which these two lines meet is the kind of bicritical point uh, where the dynamics are actually different from directed percolation. Um, and here, we're along this line where the two mutualistic parameters are equal, and so the two phases, so the two species, green and red, are actually symmetric. And so what happens is that neither one has an advantage over uh, the other, and so what happens along this line here is that you get uh, essentially compact, uh, you get the, what looks like the neutral case. So here is the mixed phase again, up here. I'll show you what happens as you move down this line. Here that you can see that the fluctuations, the spatial fluctuations get larger and it uh, prevents this mixing uh, phase from uh, staying coherent in a sense and these green and red domains get larger and larger as you move down and eventually as you hit this point they just form compact domains. And so this looks just like a neutral expansion except that the diffusive motion of these boundaries is actually going to depend on um, alpha and beta. It's uh, the diffusion coefficient essentially of, the, of these superficially look like neutral domains will actually depend on what uh, the mutualistic parameters are. So um, we'll go into that. In two dimensions, it's really interesting that these fluctuations, spatial fluctuations, actually are not enough to uh, create compact domains, and you get a mutualistic phase all the way down to alpha and beta equals zero. So at this point, this is really just regular neutral, um, uh, neutral range expansion. And so you get a mutualistic phase for any finite value of alpha and uh, beta along this line. Of course, you still get the directed percolation transitions along these boundaries here. Uh, and why is that? You can see that from a kind of droplet experiment. Uh, you take an inoculation of green and all red here, homeland, and you watch it evolve in time. And for um, values of alpha and beta less than zero, uh, there's a kind of effective poisoning that happens. The green does not want to sort of grow next to the red. It, uh, so the, the droplet stays coherent, and there's a kind of just effective surface tension uh, for this droplet. And it, uh, as you change the poisoning effect as you make it smaller and smaller as you approach this um, neutral expansion case here at alpha and beta equals zero, the droplet starts to break up because at the interface you get these fluctuations and um, the droplet can shrink. And so how do I understand yep. the surface tension in a, in a better way, let's say? Uh, I, I, David also mentioned that. So it's really, it's not clear it's actually a surface tension. It's Really, it's it's a it's it's effectively you're preventing the green cells from invading the red because the the growth rate is sort of uh, suppressed. Um, 
near the interface, so it, it, it's costly to uh, yeah, it looks like surface create. Tension. Yeah, it does. So it, it's you not clear. It onto surface tension. Yeah, right, right. So and it, it looks dynamically just like surface tension. These things kind of uh, decay. These droplets shrink and sort of the characteristic uh, square square root of time kind of behavior. Uh, but uh, well, I, I'm, not, yep. I'm not poo-pooing the idea of right. I think it's fine. <laughs> but how do you make the connection, you know, a little more rigorously? Yeah, is there, is there a way to? Well, you could you could look at to do that? yeah maybe you've done so already, Max. But you could look at the undulations right of, of the circle and see how they grow with the size of the circle and the coefficient right. uh, if, if it grows in the right way. Uh, square root of size or whatever, um, then you could identify the coefficient as a renormalized surface tension. It's a non-equilibrium problem, so, yeah, so it's, it's not it's quite different. So mm -hmm. how you would do it? That's one way. And so as you approach this point here, the droplet really completely breaks apart, and you see that uh, you get this cluster dilution that I was talking about for the neutral case where the so what time is it always five hundred? Yeah, these for these four, it's um, it's a it's a it's a thousand time steps. Oh, a thousand. Excuse me. Yep. And so you can imagine that it's uh, unlike the one-dimensional or the two-dimensional expansion. Uh, in three dimensions, really, once you get here, uh, you're already pretty much mixed. So it's not surprising that the, this point gets pinned to this loader model because of this kind of cluster dilution that occurs. Uh, for the neutral case. And remember that in one plus one dimensions, the coarsening uh, occurs with these compact sectors that uh, with well-defined interfaces are kind of annihilate, pair annihilate and so forth. Um, okay, so oh, this is just to show that you can uh, calculate how the interface uh, density decays over time. And so at the, this is the neutral case and so this is near the alpha beta equals zero. For negative alpha and beta, it's really it seems to behave just like a, uh, a droplet with a surface tension and the uh, characteristic power law seems to approach what you would expect for an Ising model, essentially at uh, low temperatures uh, where you, you, know, you quench the system and watch uh, one of the phases when you watch the, um, basically the shrinking of small droplets of one phase and the other one. And you expect them to sort of decay as a square root of time, and that's what we seem to be getting for these um, for these uh, mutualistic uh, range expansions. So um, you can also look at models with rough fronts, and this is very different. It's much tougher problem analytically to tackle. Is really uh, because now instead of having nice generations that live along nice lines from which you can write nice one-dimensional kind of equations uh, parameterized by sort of the position along um, the linear front. Now with rough fronts, things get very complicated. And you can imagine having a lattice model in which each cell can, if it's uh, adjacent to empty cells, it can uh, divide into them. And it turns out that for to get a mutualistic phase, you need the cells to be able to squeeze past each other to create a kind of mixing. So you need to allow for cells to kind of push through their nearest neighbor shell into the next nearest neighbor shell. So we add um, divisions like that, and then you can define kind of growth rates for the green and red cells, again, uh, with these mutualistic parameters. So you can define 
growth rate of a single cell is just some base growth plus alpha times the number of red cells in its nearest neighborhood. So in this case, nr here would be 1 for this cell here. It's also 1. Um, and then you can just, each time step, you just pick one of these cells that can, that's adjacent to uh, empty cells, and you pick it with a probability that's basically proportional to its growth rate. And you evolve them one at a time to get, um, well, uh, something that looks at least superficially similar. But really, the phase diagram is uh, really strikingly different. You see the phase boundary here is, uh, looks linear as opposed to the kind of curved shape we got for the flat fronts. And again, so now we have these rough fronts, which are now characterized by some roughness um, that uh, typically increases in time. And so you still get that in 1 plus 1 dimensions that you lose the mutualistic phase even for positive values of alpha and beta here due to the spatial fluctuations. But it's quite different. This is no longer really directed percolation. It's directed percolation with a rough front, which Erwin uh, Prey was here earlier. This group worked on, it's characterized by very different exponents um, because essentially what happens is that the domain dynamics here become coupled to the roughness which changes the way they annihilate. Essentially, they no longer perform random walks, but really, uh, because they are pinned to uh, the roughness of the front, they perform actually super diffusive walks, uh, which changes their, uh, the way they annihilate. And uh, so here is an instance of this directed percolation uh, at this boundary here. Um, you can see the roughness really uh, is striking here. It's, uh, so one of the things that uh, Sort of surprising about this uh, system is that you can also track the fluctuations in the uh, interface, and you can track their average size. So basically, just uh, measuring the average size of these uh, undulations here in the front. And what you find is that actually it uh, becomes enhanced near these directed percolation lines. It kind of the roughness uh, tracks where the stage transition occurs. And in the mutualistic phase, you get something that's slightly rougher than in uh, the phase where either it's all green or um, all red. So that's pretty striking. We're still trying to understand this whole, why exactly it's, uh, these uh, phase boundaries become linear and also you know, uh, this very interesting kind of uh, shape for the phase diagram essentially of the roughness, the initial roughness. It's, uh, so the roughness at some uh, somewhat early time. You expect the roughness to sort of increase without bound and to saturate us eventually uh, due to the finite size of the system, but at least for uh, early times here, you can see that uh, it's really quite striking. Um, I also tested this for late times, and you can see a similar kind of uh, behavior. The um, uh, long time roughness of the interface essentially also has this property that it really becomes enhanced near the direct percolation transition. Um. Okay, um, that's, uh, that's it, so <laughs> thank you. In the interest of time, I think we should just take a few questions and then discuss. So, uh, uh, I actually got uh, a little confused uh, a while ago just with uh, the parameter regime. 
Yep. Right. So at some point, uh, you introduce a uh, percolation model, and uh, there's this notion that uh, the color of a neighboring cell can change. Right? And that's your effective parameter mu, and uh, it is uh, somehow uh, uh, substantial. Right? Uh, now, if we go back and uh, think in terms of these uh, little percolating cells, right? so there's some characteristic uh, scale, which presumably in your continuum description shows up in fusion, and there is a density of bacteria, so there is some characteristic number of individuals living in this little hexagonal cell, etc. Et what I'm getting at is you know, mutation rate, realistically, for E. coli, is uh, what 10 to the minus 3 per genome generation or something, right? And deleterious mutation is uh, probably a tenth of that. So we should be seeing reversions in color, mm -hmm. according to this little argument, in uh, 10 to the minus 4 cases. It would look to me that uh, this is a much less Swiss cheesy yeah. situation, and I assume that basically means we're nowhere close to criticality. Yeah, so if you include the backwards mutation, of course, you destroy the phase transition as you no longer get. Um... No, no, I'm uh, backward means uh, from well, reversing uh, the colors, right? Because there's no longer an absorbing state. So, so I mean, there's. No, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm not adding. A... You're not talking about. I'm not talking about beneficial mutations. I'm talking just about deleterious mutations. I'm talking about uh, so local extinction which is generating those little uh, holes in the, in the green cheese. Right. So you're saying that the mutation rate is too small to, to observe? Well, I'm not saying. I'm, I just want to understand uh, if you take uh, your uh, bacterial colony on the solid uh, agar uh, and try to estimate uh, your percolation parameter, mm -hmm. What is it? Where are you on that uh, phase diagram? So, so it, it depends. I mean, if it depends on what particular. Um, so, you, one way to achieve this would be through some phenotypic effect. You can have, you know, um, some rate at which, since, say, the fluorescence uh, becomes quenched over time. So, there's various ways of uh, creating this in an experimental setting. I'm not sure what, you know. You have a genetic switch as yeah. a proxy for mutation. Right. One thing. But the other thing I would say in answer to your question is that uh, these um, mutualistic things that Melanie Mueller did um, don't actually have mutations, but mathematically it's the same kind of thing with a pair of directed percolation transitions. And she's definitely uh, exploring robustly that phase diagram. So that particular problem with the alpha and the beta parameters is easy to engineer, and then, and then you can actually see these things. The actual mutations, you're right, are so small in most biological situations, maybe you need a virus or something to, to see it. Uh, Perfect, but I'm perfectly happy to, uh, to, to contemplate different regimes. So maybe if you're thinking about uh, viruses on the scale of New York City and uh, some <laughs> long-range uh, hopping and, uh, and whatnot, I can very easily imagine that on sufficiently large scale, right. one can actually enter this regime. But I'd just like to uh, see some discussion as to uh, 
what the relevant parameter is and how it maps into uh, uh, biology or ecology or whatever it might be. Right. As I said, I think you, it, it's hard. I would personally think it would be hard to get a mapping other than New York City and incredible time scales. Um, uh, we, we know pretty well with the mutualistic yeast strings and, and so forth, which ends up being the same thing mathematically and, and then you access it, the outcome later. And it might also, the, the 3D models especially I expect to be uh, relevant for models of um, cancer growth and so forth, where you know, have a very rapid um, turnover of cells and so forth, very rapid evolution. So there I think is idea that you know the spatial dynamics really is important uh, for how these things in the sector boundaries and so forth think uh, provide insights to these um, systems where the mutations are quite rapid just in the 3d case other questions on the interest of time let's thank Max and Dave